Hi, this is Toko U.S. Brand Manager Ian Harvey. I'm here with Danny Arovich. Danny is on the U.S. Paralympic team for Nordic skiing and biathlon. She was a member of the U.S. Paralympic team this past summer in Tokyo in track and field. Her goal is to compete in the Paralympic Games this winter in China. Hi, Danny. Thank you for taking the time for this interview, especially during this uh, busy time of year. You're at the national championships here in Heber City. So I appreciate you taking the time and, uh, to talk with me. Thank you so much for having me, and I appreciate you. Super. So let's dive in. You grew up in Boise, Idaho. You were Correct. born. You were born missing your left hand and forearm. Mm -hmm. Despite this, you have been an athlete, quite a good athlete, your whole life, participating in soccer, basketball, softball, ice skating, and ice skating during your youth, and and also other sports later that we'll talk about. Tell me, what is it about sports and competing that appeals to you? I think that growing up being physically different from my peers, sports was the one place where I felt like I could achieve equal status to my peers, despite what I looked like. And that really instilled in me a competitive spirit that not only did I want to compete well in sports, but I wanted to be beating my able-bodied peers and show them that missing my hand didn't count me out or put me on a, the bench in any sport. I really wanted to be able to show that despite what they thought might have been an impairment or hindrance to achieving a high level in sport really was something I could use to my advantage and still be able to beat them. So kind of a, you had something to prove. Mm -hmm. I definitely felt that way, which now I look back and I'm not sure that was the best attitude to feel like I had to prove myself. But I think at the same time, it did make it so that I did learn to be a very high competitor in sport at a young age. It seems to me you also have a natural affinity for competition and for sport or without, mm -hmm. the, without the chip in your shoulder. <laughs> that sound right? I like that. <laughs> like, like, I think that you're, you like competition. I think you like working mm -hmm. hard, focusing towards something. That's just the feeling I get from you. And it's not necessarily mm -hmm. related to that, but I think it's your nature. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. Cool. I think it's definitely something I got also from my family as well growing up was being able to have that spirit. And they both were collegiate athletes as well. So I mm -hmm. think it comes somewhat from them as well. Cool. In high school, you switched to cross-country running and eventually track and field. After excelling in running in high school, you ran for Butler University in Indianapolis cross-country running, indoor track, and outdoor track. I know you had a lot of knee problems, and after your freshman mm -hmm. uh, year, you left track and field to focus on your studies. However, I, I'm sure the knee problems were frustrating, but I have to think that this is maybe an important part of your development because competing for a D1 school in track and field, mm -hmm. you must have, must have been great experience, and I imagine you had some things that you learned there about being an elite athlete. Do you have any comment on that? Yes, I definitely learned a lot about high level training because I think I just obviously hadn't hit that level of elite status in any other sport. So I learned really the amount of hours and the amount of effort that goes in to being a competitor at that level. And while unfortunately my track and cross country career didn't play out in college, I still value the experience. And I do also value then the time that I had to just be a normal college student and to be able to focus on going to school and getting involved in other activities on campus that maybe I couldn't have done while I was playing my college sport. Cool. Some of the things I thought maybe 
would have been lessons for a developing athlete like that as in a D1 program would have been, you know, how to train, how to be professional, mm -hmm. how to focus not only during an event, but on a goal, nutrition, yes. recovery from injury, et cetera. Um, so with that in mind, I wonder if maybe if it might be, might be interesting for you to consider and also to tell us, what are some of the things that you think you're particularly good at and maybe not so good at in that respect? Ooh. I think that I have, in, particularly in the past two years, and this started opening my eyes up to this while I was in college, is the importance of recovery. In college, or I definitely saw our elite level runners prioritizing their recovery time as much as they did their training time. And that was just something I hadn't experienced in high school sports. And now it's definitely taken me still a few years to learn, really learn that lesson. But that's something now that I probably value a lot more and spend a lot more time doing. I think something I still struggle in is nutrition. I think our nutritionists for our teams would say the same. I just get tempted very easily by sweets and things like that. I try to be well balanced, but I also never want to be too restrictive of myself and while being an athlete is my full-time job and it's a job basically 24 seven, I also think I am a normal person and I want to enjoy different things in life, especially when it comes to maybe diet. And so I never want to restrict myself too much, but I think I can definitely <laughs> work on that area. Cool. That's neat. I'm sure everyone could identify with both the things you said and that's cool. Mm -hmm. So after college, you moved to Salt Lake City and you work for the Utah Jazz basketball team. I'm curious what you did for them, for the organization. Yes. So after I stopped running in college, I decided what I wanted my career to be was to work on the business side of professional sports. I think that just shows that despite not being an athlete anymore, I still wanted to be involved around sports. And my favorite sports at the time and the organizations I wanted to work for was either an NFL team or an NBA team. And while I was in college, I was lucky enough to intern for both an NFL and an NBA team. I got my first job out of school with the Utah Jazz. I started out in sales and that is a grind of a job. It's very tough. And it taught me a lot, not only about myself and about the business world, but I think a lot of it relates to sports itself, being in a sales role. And after that, I had started training a little bit for running and I decided I needed something a little more flexible that wasn't the 60 to 70 hours a week sometimes we were putting in for an NBA team doing sales. And so I was lucky enough to move to a part-time role within the organization and that was in community relations. And so basically I acted as a liaison between the jazz organization and different nonprofits and charities in the community and tried to use our organization to help those nonprofits and charities. That's cool. That must've been fun. Thanks. So you started missing competition and decided to look into the Paralympic track and field scene. You started training again and after getting fit, entered some events. Things went well enough that you left your full-time job and committed to training to qualify for the Paralympics. That must have been quite a leap of faith. I know you work for a living and need the money. Can you comment on, on that leap of faith that you took? When I decided that training was becoming important enough that I couldn't do it with my full-time job, it took a lot 
of heavy decisions because it meant leaving a salary, benefits, a 401k, all the things that basically we were taught growing up and in college are the important things in life. It took, excuse me, a lot of courage in order to do something like that. It still, I think, probably gave my parents the biggest heart attack they've ever experienced having me as their child. And it took a big leap of faith for both my family and myself. But at the time, and still to this day, I think it was the right decision. And it took a lot of effort to figure out how can I pay my rent for the next few months and how can I afford to go to these competitions? Because when you're first entering the sport, you don't have financial backing from the organization. You're trying to even catch the eyes of the organization. And it was a really challenging time to figure out how all the pieces could come together for this one lofty goal of trying to make the Tokyo team. In track and field this last summer. Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. Hey, um, I want to ask a quick question. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, you agreed to do this interview and it's great. You could kind of wear anything you wanted and you're wearing a Team USA shirt. Um, <laughs> you represented the United States in the Paralympics already. And you're looking to represent the United States this winter in in uh, China. What does it mean mm-hmm. to you to represent your country in international competition? It is pretty much an indescribable feeling, to be honest. I never experienced anything like it. Like obviously, growing up, I wore my club team's you know logos and our mascot, and my high school team, and then my collegiate team. But to be a part of something that's not just representing like a small part of a community within the U.S., but representing the whole U.S. is a spectacular feeling. I think we are so lucky to be able to have this opportunity to do so. And it's pretty cool, to be honest. And like, it's been really exciting to see family members and friends get the same excitement when they get to wear something from Team USA now because they feel even more so a connection to it by having me a part of the team USA community. And it's, it's really cool. It's really cool to be like in an airport and have a team USA bag or something like that and have someone come up and ask what sport you play. And I've had people come up to me in public when I have something team USA on and they say without knowing me, because most likely they did not see my race in Tokyo at the Paralympic Games, but they'll say, thank you so much for representing our country so well. I was like, you don't even know me, but that is the nicest thing that someone could probably say to us as athletes when we are representing the U.S. Absolutely. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Um, You qualified for the U.S. Paralympic team trials by hitting Mm -hmm. the required times in your event, which is the 400 meters. You stepped up your training and you started working with experienced coaches. Then around this time, you got an inquiry from, I guess it was Beth Ann Chamberlain. Mm-hmm. She was impressed by your background in running and with your athleticism and figured you'd make a great cross-country ski racer. She invited you to a training camp in December of 2019, which you attended. Can you tell us about this experience? So in 2019, I had fully committed to running and it was approaching winter and I was planning on doing a full indoor season. Beth Ann had heard about me through the grapevine, I guess, 
And she reached out and offered for me to go to a week-long camp in Breckenridge, Colorado. I was kind of hesitant at first because, again, I was putting all my energy into Tokyo and track and field. And so this, while it was exciting, almost seemed like it could be a distraction. But she offered me a free trip to Breckenridge. (laughs) It was kind of hard to say no. And I grew up downhill skiing just never really had cross-country skied. I had been on cross-country skis once with my dad for 20 minutes and decided I didn't really enjoy what we were doing and wanted to go downhill ski instead. And so I went to this camp kind of with no expectations, to be honest. And I came out of that week thinking, I wonder if I can do this on the Paralympic level. And I told Bethann, and who's now my coach, Nick Michaud, that if I was going to pursue this sport, I wasn't going to do it recreationally. I'd only do it with the goal of going to the Paralympic Games and eventually being a medalist. And I think, I don't know if that scared them or made them excited or what, but I was just at the point where I was like, I'm so focused on this running goal that if I'm going to add something else to my plate, it's not going to be too mess around we're going to talk about being at an elite level and trying to get there as soon as possible and so just a few weeks after i did that camp i actually competed at the paralympic team nationals which was quite intimidating considering i'd only tried out skiing two weeks prior and that experience i think kind of solidified the fact that this was something i would eventually keep doing and hopefully do at that elite level I was going to ask you if the, if going to that first camp was intimidating. And I think you answered the question when you said <laughs> camp, you sat down with Beth Ann and Nick and said, I'll do it. But only if we, if we go full in with the goal of, you know, eventually mm-hmm. medal. So I guess it wasn't <laughs> for you. Uh, yeah, it was, I mean, it was, it's always intimidating being new at something, especially when at the time I was 23. And so it's intimidating trying something so new when you're already a little bit older and you've already had so much other sports experience. So to hop onto a brand new sport is definitely a lot to take in. And I mean, I'm still sometimes intimidated by a sport because to be honest, I think it's the most difficult sport I've ever done. (laughs) Well, shortly after you won both races at us nationals. So, you know, that's a great start. (laughs) You still, had, you still had the goal of running in the Paralympics in Tokyo, Japan. So for the rest of the 2020 winter, you balanced training for running on the track with your ski training. I imagine this was very stimulating to balance both activities. Like, imagine you kept mentally super fresh and sharp. And I, I, I think that must have been fun. Um, one sport you were very accomplished at and another new sport that you were progressing at very every day. Please tell us uh, how that was and how you balanced the two sports in your training and in your head. At the time, I was so focused on Tokyo that I really put any skiing on the back burner. And so probably for the remainder of that winter before COVID hit, I was probably only skiing about once to twice a week because I really was focused on running. I was lucky to find... Tanya Kari in the Salt Lake ski community who was willing to help me learn quite a bit to ski. So we would do a session once every week or so, and then I'd get out by myself to ski um, about another time a week. 
but my main priority was track. So I kind of just saw skiing as like a supplemental workout. I didn't really know if it was going to hinder my track or help it or how that would work since I was training for the 400 meter, which is obviously a pretty short distance in comparison to what the cross country ski races are like. And it wasn't until this most recent 2020 into 2021 winter where I really had to focus on trying to train for both. So tell us about how you how you balanced it and if there are any nuances that we could learn from. How I balanced it was probably figuring out what were key workouts for both sport and seeing if there was a way that I could do one that would still help the other. So maybe I had a longer running session. Well, I could probably do something like that on skis or say I had maybe a shorter interval workout for skiing, I could probably do that running. So it's just trying to figure out what key workouts were, mesh it together a little bit. And I think what taught me the most was just learning to listen to my body. And if I was trying to shove too much in, my body wouldn't respond well to it. And so it was trying to just be a little bit experimental and learn to trust my body. And to be honest, I'll never know if I did it perfectly right. right. Um, sometimes I wonder maybe if I had done less skiing, would I performed better in the 400? Or if I had done something more related to skiing, would I not have felt so out of shape when I hopped back on skis this fall? So who's to say I ever did it perfectly right? But I had to keep both goals in mind. And with the delay of the Tokyo Paralympic Games, I kind of had no choice but to figure out how I could make two work the best I could. Cool. Yeah, that's interesting. So COVID hit uh, that, that winter, I guess, and the Tokyo mm -hmm. Games were postponed for a year. How did this affect you and what was your mindset? How did you navigate this? The postponement of Tokyo was definitely disappointing, but I tried to view it in a positive light because to be honest, I had only been training since the winter of 2019 for Tokyo. So I hadn't given myself a lot of time to try to make the Tokyo team. And I was training for a different event in track than what I was used to from when I ran in college. So the postponement I tried to view in a positive light that having that extra year could help me sharpen up, train more and be in a better place to actually make the team than if it had happened in 2020. But I think there was always a worry still because of the unknowns of COVID if it would even happen in 2020. So I think with the postponement, a lot of people were just afraid that it may never happen. So we're pretty lucky that it did end up happening just a year later because who knows, there could have been cancellation, it could have been delayed another year. There's just so many variables that we didn't know. And so I think for most athletes whose goal was Tokyo was just to continue training and try not to watch news headlines about all the things going on and just stay focused and just readjust their timelines of when they planned on racing and when they were supposed to peak and how their training was laid out, kind of reevaluate, somewhat start from scratch for a new year of training when we knew it was going to be delayed by almost a year and start anew, basically in a new season, take a little bit of time off and then go from there. Cool. 
So you kept balancing your training for running on the track and Nordic skiing and biathlon. That winter, you were invited to compete in a World Cup in Slovenia in which you finished fourth. That must have been very rewarding and exciting. Can you tell us about that experience and what you may have learned there? I was really surprised when I qualified for the International World Cup um, in the spring of 2021. That winter, I had been invited to come up to Bozeman to train with the national team for cross-country and biathlon. And I was very flattered that they even considered me for that, again, because of how new I was to the sport. And so I think that winter in Bozeman last year was really key to developing me as a skier and getting all that attention and focus from the coaches instead of kind of training on my own with a little bit of help here and there. In Slovenia, I had to race against some people who were like Paralympic medalists and very successful skiers. So I was definitely intimidated, but I found that I wasn't as far behind them as I might've expected being so new. And the biggest thing I've had to learn and still to this day in skiing is that it takes a while to learn how to ski. And I'm only my second competitive season. So I have to be pretty patient with myself and I can't expect results to come that fast. While I know I'm a good athlete and I'm a good endurance athlete, I just genuinely still have so much to learn about technique. And so that's something whenever I have competed now since internationally, I just have to remind myself is they've probably been skiing, you know, since they could walk there. Many of these Eastern European countries, skiing is just such a big part of their culture, whereas here, it might not be. And for me, as someone who didn't start the sport until 23, it's just going to take me some time to learn a lot about how to ski. And so that's definitely something when I first got to compete in Slovenia against my international competition was a reminder that, yeah, you might feel like you're good at the sport already and things like that. But to be frank, you're not quite yet, but that's okay. It's just going to take some time. Super. On that, on that note, then, uh, you were working with some great coaches and people. Would you like to tell us about your coaches and specifically how it is working with them? We are so lucky in the Paralympic team program here in the U.S. to have a handful of some really great coaches. I was recruited to try the sport by Bethany Chamberlain, and she acts as our um, developmental ski coach. So she's basically finding talent throughout the U S who's pair eligible and introducing them to the sport. And she remains a constant support system for us who are now fully in the program. My other coach is Nick Michaud and he is my day-to-day -day coach. And we get to spend now a lot of time together and we've learned a lot about each other. And I think it's been really helpful to now be in my second full season with him. And we have learned basically how to work a lot stronger as coach and athlete. And he has been a constant source of support and been really the person who's, he was the first person to teach me to ski in that first ever camp. So to now continue to have him as my coach every single day, I learned so much from him and he really prioritizes technique with me which I appreciate so we'll spend a lot of time watching video of technique 
really, I ask a lot of questions that probably can get annoying how many questions I ask because I'm just genuinely curious how this sport works and how I can be better at this sport and all the little details that go into it. And he's really great at helping me answer those questions, helping me find ways to answer those questions myself and really has helped me. And I don't think I'd be where I am skiing wise if it hadn't been for working with him. So Nick Michaud is your coach. For those that don't know Nick, um, he coaches at Crosscut Ranch, north of Bozeman. Um, he narrowly missed the last Olympic team as a sprint specialist. I mean, he, he did all sorts of races, but he was really good at sprints. Mm-hmm. He's a great personality. He's definitely <laughs> um, So that's that's your coach, Nick Michaud. He's a great, yeah. yeah. Um, and you ski for your club is Crosscut Ranch, or is that – how does that relationship go with Crosscut and U.S. Paralympic? So our director, Eileen Carey, she started four or five years ago, a really interesting concept of basing the team out of one place. Most of the athletes and coaches prior were spread around the U.S. and would only get together at World Cups or World Championships and for some training camps. She wanted to create a base where they could store everything and have like these different resources available for the team and kind of make a home base for it. So she thought Bozeman, Montana would be a really good place for that. So she moved the program there a few years ago and she wanted to develop a partnership with one of the clubs in town so we could use resources from each other and just learn from each other too as well. And so our partnership is with Crosscut Mountain Sports Center, and it has been a really great partnership. We have access to the facilities, access to their coaches, vice versa. And especially for those like myself and some of my teammates who are standing skiers and we can compete in able-bodied competitions, we get to then also have these elite level athletes around our age who are able-bodied that we can train with, we can learn from, and it's been super helpful. And I'm very grateful to have that partnership between U.S. Paralympics and Crosscut Mountain Sports Center. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Super. Okay, you returned to the track and you qualified for Tokyo 2021. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> the games didn't go as well as you had wanted, but it sounds like you learned some great lessons from your disappointment. Is that fair? I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, that is very fair. <laughs> Would you mind sharing, um, as I'm sure that these thoughts that you had and these lessons that you learned from your disappointment would benefit many of our followers? I went into Tokyo very realistic. I was ranked 12th in the world. I wasn't running the times that I wanted. And to be quite frank, I'm pretty lucky I even made the team with the time I ran at our trials. I knew making a finals would be hard because solely based off of times. That's something that's beautiful about track and field, about swimming. There's a track is the same, you know, worldwide. So times are comparable. You can look at the numbers. The numbers don't lie. And the numbers were not my favorite. And I wasn't running what I wanted to be running. But to be honest, I'd never run those times. Like, For me to have qualified for a final at the games, I would have had to have a massive PR and I wasn't able to do that, unfortunately. And that's okay because 
I was realistic before. It sucks in the moment. You never want to lose, even though you know <laughs> sometimes that you most likely will not be on that podium or not be in that final. Like in the moment, it can still sting quite a bit, but it's just reminding yourself that, you know, as long as you feel like you put in your honest effort and did everything you can, we're not all meant to be gold medalists and we're not all meant to have these significant athletic accomplishments. And that's just one thing I think in sports, obviously winning is the goal and winning is idolized, but most people don't win. Most people won't walk away with a medal or won't walk away with a PR at the biggest competition of the year. And that's what happened to me. And I think that I took to social media to like write something about how I was feeling. And I hope some people who participate in sports identify for it. And something I said in it was for every person who makes the finals, there's also one who doesn't make the finals. And for every person who gets a PR, there's most likely someone who didn't get a PR. And obviously you want to be the first person, but it's not always going to be the case. And I think it was a good lesson for me in humility and just learning to deal with expectations in a realistic manner. And it's not to say you shouldn't have goals and reach high for what you want to do, but sometimes also you need to keep yourself grounded and remind yourself where you're at and use that as motivation to get better. But yeah, it was an interesting experience. It wasn't something I'd want anyone else to go through, but obviously people will always have to go through that. And it's a bummer, but at the end of the day, it's motivation to work harder now on the next sport I'm doing. Cool. I talk a lot with our US ski team athletes. And one thing that kind of always comes back from, from Keegan Randall and from our current athletes is um, the learning process and trying to get better every day. And for example, that was my first Olympics. So that was kind of a learning process, you know, getting a feel for it, et cetera, et cetera. And then you mm -hmm. come back and try again. And maybe even you're fortunate enough to come back eight years mm -hmm. later and try again. You know, that's an interesting perspective. And you, you were only in the first step of that. And it was, it's good mm -hmm. to hear your, your thoughts on that. So about a month ago, you competed in a World Cup in Camor, Alberta. Yesterday, you also competed in one of the U.S. Nationals races. How's your season going thus far? And what's your status currently with respect to competing in the Paralympics in China? The season so far has been okay. Um, honestly, I didn't really know what to expect coming in since I didn't have the summer base of training that probably a lot of people did fully do to competing in track and in Tokyo. But it's been okay. Um, in Canmore, I was placing like middle of the pack to end of the pack, which I was bummed about. But at the same time, it's so hard to still compare myself to so many of these athletes I'm competing against because they have a lot more experience under their belts in the sport of skiing than I do. So it's trying to just take something from each race and learn from it and use it moving forward. In terms of qualifying for the games, we don't really have like a one way to qualify there's kind of a multitude of ways to fill the roster spots that our team will undergo mostly through the next month so the team should be named i believe at the beginning of february but i luckily get to head to norway on saturday for the world championships 
I qualified for world championships. So I'll be joining some of our other athletes over in Norway and we'll get hopefully to do, I believe three biathlon and three cross country races there. I'm particularly excited for biathlon because in Canada, I was lucky enough, we have minimums you have to hit to even be considered to be named to the team. And I hit it for cross country, but not for biathlon. So these three races in Norway are kind of going to be well, not a pressure, but a little bit of time to rock <laughs> situations cool. in order to make sure I can do biathlon additionally to cross country in the games. Sounds good. Mm -hmm. So um, let's talk technique for a second. No oh boy, yes. <laughs> I broke my hand one summer a long time ago and skied with one pole for quite a lot. And mm -hmm. I also had a long-term rib, rib injury for a while. And I had to ski without poles at all for a couple mm -hmm. of years. Um, so I know quite a bit about skiing with one or no poles. <laughs> um, you've been at this for a couple of years now. I'm curious about, for example, when you do a V1, so when you're climbing, I saw you mm -hmm. yesterday and you were, when you were climbing, you were using your pole as, on your strong hand, which makes sense mm -hmm. on a steeper hill. So that's, mm -hmm. that's what I've seen pretty much all the Paralympic athletes doing. But I'm curious, on a flatter hill, like a very gradual, do you ever use your pole as your weak hand, your weak side hand, so that you can, it brings, you can kind of center your weight more over your legs, get more out of your legs, and just use your arm as compared to your body weight and your pole. I've heard from actually someone who has one hand and some of our coaches, a multitude of opinions on whether to be one on both sides when you do have one hand. I have mostly stuck to be one on only my right side, but I've experimented a little bit, particularly in practices, trying to be one on my left. It will take a lot of practice because I kind of have to then get like the rhythm down of pulling when I'm planting with my left foot. So just for clarification, but, right would be your strong, mm -hmm. having your pull on your strong yes. side and left would have having the pull on your weak side. Yes, correct. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and so I definitely think it's something I should spend some more time experimenting with and seeing if it works for me, but it will take quite a bit more practice. But yes, I've heard somewhat of a multitude of opinions on whether it's best to be one on both weak and strong side or just on your strong side. So mm -hmm. I think it's probably up to the athlete and experimentation. And if something works for them, like all gears ahead, then to me, it's a dangerous thing to try to commit too much to pulling power because mm -hmm. generally that takes away from your equilibrium and your power with your legs. Mm -hmm. And if you only have one pole, then it makes it a losing proposition, I think, except for perhaps steeper climbs. You mm -hmm. Like for example, a V2. In a V2, I've been to quite a few Paralympic events and I've seen some incredible athletes V2ing. And I'm just thinking, wow, it's amazing they're doing that, but I gotta think they'd be faster, perhaps anyway, it depends on the conditions. You know, Slower conditions, it makes more sense. Faster mm -hmm. conditions, it makes less sense. Uh, to, to just use your legs. Mm -hmm. and, and you got to be hella strong in your legs skating without pole. Mm -hmm. And and if you're committing to a V2 with one pole, you're getting less out of your legs, much less mm -hmm. out of your legs, but you're not getting the benefit because you only have one pole. 
And you also mm-hmm. want the stability because it's only one sided on a V2 that's really hard in your stabilization. So anyway, that's some thoughts I had that I wanted to talk yeah. about. Have you um, played around with your V2 versus skating without poles on a faster section? Yeah, I definitely feel like I prefer to do more free skate if possible. And I also feel like it's more natural for me coming from a not ski background to free skate. Hmm. And I feel like I can, you know, get a little more athletic and aggressive with it. Whereas polling is obviously something that takes a lot of time to learn. And it's so funny, like my first year skiing, I couldn't be to at all because I genuinely didn't spend enough time on each ski to get a full pole um, stroke in while I was on that ski. So I've come a long way in it. Um, but yeah, I think I definitely see it because that's something that's so beautiful with Paralympic sports is I compete against people who have two poles. I can, who might have a leg impairment. I compete against people who don't have any poles. So to see how different people adapt to whatever works for them is pretty interesting. And I think, yeah, it's really up to the athlete and what works best for them in their situation and maybe to their strengths. But I think there's a lot of room in para where technique can be played with maybe in comparison to able-bodied. Yeah, absolutely. I think too. So can you, can you just give a quick rundown on the system you were just starting to describe about how you compete against people from all different sorts of classes mm-hmm. uh, and there's a kind of a formulas as to how mm-hmm. you all are then on the same sheet and the results, right? Yes. So basically in para for cross-country skiing and biathlon, there's three overarching categories. There's standing, sit skis, and visually impaired. And so I will only compete against standing skiers. But then within that class, there's a variety of classes. And depending on what class you're in will determine your factors, what they call it. And the factor is a percent applied to your overall time that is where the IPC thinks basically how much are you affected in this race. So for people like myself who have one pole but have most of their other arm, they get a factor in a skate race typically of 96%. So you get 96% of your time of your raw time. And then for a classic race where they consider us a little more affected. So we get 92% of our time. So they apply the factors after, which is kind of an interesting thing as compared to able-bodied skiing. And we can compete against people who are amputees, people who have partially paralyzed arms, people who might be a baloney amputee, people who might have a partially paralyzed foot. So there's kind of a variety of disabilities in our class. And then visually impaired works the same they get a factor depending on how much of their vision is impaired and then for sit skiing it's kind of the same thing you get a factor depending on how much of your core you're able to use how much of different muscles depending on if someone's paralyzed or if someone's an amputee are they able to fully engage certain muscles that are needed in the sit ski so it's kind of a complicated system i don't know if anyone fully understands it the classification system um, but yeah, that's kind of how it differs from the able-bodied seeing. Cool. Super. Thank you for the explanation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this year you've been using Toco gloves and I'm wondering if you have a favorite Toco glove and if so, why is it your favorite? I have it next to me. I like the thermal plus and I've actually been able to use this glove for biathlon as well. I think it's a good, 
um, glove to be able to use for, I've been using it for somewhat not fully chilly, chilly temperatures where I need a mitten, but kind of those in between. And I really enjoyed it. I feel like I can get a lot of flexibility and movement in with it, but still have quite a bit of warmth with it. Um, but yeah, I only need right-handed gloves. That is one thing that's always been interesting when I was growing up downhill skiing is I never needed to buy a full pair of mittens or gloves because I always just needed the right. <laughs> cool. Um, so here's a question that I think everyone will be interested in hearing, and I have no idea what you're going to say. How is being <laughs> how is being a Paralympic runner and skier different from being an able-bodied athlete? Are there some aspects to your current life that our followers might not recognize that you would like to highlight? I think that the biggest part about being an adaptive or a Paralympic athlete in comparison to able-bodied peers is just that we have to sometimes train a little differently. It depends on your disability, but you have to be pretty creative to be able to try things in different ways that aren't necessarily the norm. For myself, I see the biggest difference of having to adapt is probably in the weight room and things that maybe people don't think twice about being able to do. I have to figure out a completely new way to try it. And in order to do things like that, I also think that with Paralympic sports, I typically see a lot more people entering the sport from an older age. Oftentimes, I think with our Olympic counterparts, these are sports that they've been doing since the time they can walk and their whole life has been driven towards this. Whereas with the Paralympics, I see quite a few people, including myself, getting into it when they're a little bit older, getting pulled into new sports and you see it oftentimes when people go through a traumatic injury and um, acquire a disability or limitation is that sport kind of gives them a new sense of life. And maybe they weren't even a competitive athlete prior, but then after they're injured, they're able to use sport to help not only recover from that, but then to find a new sense of purpose in life. So, yeah, I feel like there's just different ways of training it's still, you know, elite level sport in terms of the amount of hours put in and the amount of dedication it takes, things like that. But I think it's just doing things a little bit differently. And then also I see definitely a difference in when people get involved and it doesn't have to be like a sport you've done since you were four, but you can maybe hop into sport a little bit later in life and find an elite level status within it. Cool. Absolutely. I want to say a couple of things that I actually haven't mentioned to you, but I think they're worth saying, not just to you, but on this podcast. Mm -hmm. um, growing up as a young cross-country skier who did other sports too, I had a lot of people I looked up to. One was Bill Coke when I was a little tyke and in my whole life, I've really looked up to him. Um, but there's another person that most people have no idea about. I've told this person a few times, his name is Bill Henry. Bill uh, lives in New York now, but he did all of the Eastern Circuit as well as National Marathon Race and such. Um, he's a black man who now lives in New York and he's got one arm. And he had mm -hmm. one arm through all that time. And I, every time I ever saw him, he was so cheerful and mm -hmm. um, tough as nails. You know, he'd be skiing a 50K with one arm in a blizzard with horrible conditions where <laughs> most people just count themselves lucky to, you know, or fortunate to finish. And I always yeah. looked up to him and I never stopped. And I've told him that a few times. Um, 
So I just want you to know that one of my lifetime <laughs> idols is a Paralympic athlete with one arm. That's awesome. <laughs> and I should also tell you, um, over the years, I spent a lot of time around the para athletes, uh, many, many athletes from 20 years ago, 30 years all the way up. And um, there's some of the, I guess I would say like the, the, the spirit of sport. And I'm not being condescending, obviously. I don't mean like in an amateur way, but I mean in, in every way. Like, the kind of spirit of sport that you would like if you were, let's say, a Utah jazz fan, that's the mm -hmm. spirit that you want the Utah jazz players to have. That never say, never say die attitude, courageous, tough, but at the same time, maintaining a cheerful demeanor, you know, not losing it. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. that's, that's the, the spirit that all the pair athletes that I've been around for many years are not, yeah. for example, one arm Willie. Uh, yes, I love one arm Willie. Yeah, <laughs> well, like great friends over the years. And, um, a lot of great friends. And um, I just want you to know that I look up to many of your compatriots. Um, mm -hmm. And I want to, I should say, I think it's a, I didn't really think about it until now, but I, I imagine for some people listening to this, it might be an interesting thing to say that, or to realize that one of my lifelong idols is a Paralympic athlete. That's cool. More, far more <laughs> than Olympic athletes, you know? So yeah, I thought I'd <laughs> Yeah. That's cool. Thanks. Okay, so you have, um, one of your focuses has been to help people by raising inclusivity for disabled athletes in the outdoors. Is that properly said? Yes. Okay, can you talk about that, please? Yes, so I've partnered with some organizations, one being local to Utah, the National Ability Center in Park City, and I volunteered for them, and now I work as an ambassador, and something I want not only to make the outdoors inclusive for everyone, but the entire world, I just think that now that I've been involved in the Paralympics and the adaptive world, the world doesn't necessarily not fit for me there's definitely things I encounter that can be challenging with having one hand but a lot of my peers now who may be using a wheelchair or have a variety of disabilities whether they're visually impaired etc the world is really not designed with them at all in mind and so I've just unfortunately had to see quite a bit of how people of this group have had to struggle to not only have the world feel like they're a part of it and can fit it without having to <laughs> change it so significantly and feel like they're causing burdens by doing so, but also just having more people in the spotlight with disabilities, because I think, like you said, you didn't even realize, and you're pretty lucky that you did have that idol who was a Paralympic athlete, but most people may never know someone with a disability or have ever seen someone. So then when they see it for the first time, it's such a shock when I think it should just be the norm. So I just want to try to continue to share that message. And hopefully the more people I come encounter with now moving forward, when they see someone else with a disability, we'll just not see it as like something that's so out of the norm or so different, but just another person rather. So that's one thing that I really love about the National Ability Center is they're trying to help people with a variety of disabilities get into the outdoors and get to experience it and make it feel like the outdoors is a place where they can have sanctuary and feel like they're belonging to. I'm lucky enough to live in a community that is 
I guess for 20 minutes from the National Ability Center. Mm-hmm. And I had a friend, a good friend who had a, a severe stroke a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And part of his recovery, I take him up to the National Ability Center and they plopped him on a horse. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and his whole one side of his body was basically didn't have the nerves and he couldn't use it. Um, but mm-hmm. they were trying to get that little teeny bit of nerves that were working to, you know, maximize his use of it. And, and putting him on the horse, he had to go left and right. And, mm-hmm. and so he had to use both sides. And mm-hmm. that was one of the therapies that they gave him. And it was very rewarding for him to be able to do that, of course. Um, he loves horses, but that's not why the therapy was for him. It had nothing to do with horses. Yeah. It just was a coincidence that he was an old cowboy type as well. <laughs> such a great organization, a great thing to be able to do to, to bring mm-hmm. in not only joy, but also they were able to restore a lot of his function, at least partially mm-hmm. restore some of his function. And it was a beautiful thing to witness. Um, mm-hmm. And it made me very grateful to, to live in a community that close to National Ability Center. And I wish there were many more. Mm-hmm. So that's cool Definitely. that you're associated with them. So I read that you look up to the famous football <laughs> player, Peyton Manning. Um, I have no idea why, but I figure it might be an opportunity for you to tell us what about Peyton Manning it is that you find so inspirational. I started watching football with my dad when I was in the fourth grade, probably because he wanted a son and I, he was stuck with me. And so we just would spend hours watching football together. And I just watched Peyton Manning and I idolized him and I thought, he was just seemed like the most down to earth, hardworking, coolest person. Like it was definitely just like a childhood um, kind of obsession that turned that continued into adulthood. And I was lucky enough to go to college in the town where the Colts are based out of. And I got to actually work for the Indianapolis Colts while I was in college. I have not gotten to meet Peyton yet, but that is definitely a lifelong goal of mine is to meet him. But I just think he was just the hardest working, like most impressive quarterback of the entirety of the NFL. And I'm probably biased by saying that because I was a Colts fan too, but um, I just definitely thought he was the coolest guy when I was growing up. (laughs) I think when it comes to sports fans, we should be biased. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) So, okay. <laughs> so Danny, you work in marketing and you also work as a freelance social media manager. Mm-hmm. Can you please tell us about your work? So I, after I left the jazz and was training full-time, I had to go through quite a bit of hodgepodge kind of temporary jobs in order to pay some bills. But now I feel like I'm kind of settling more so into a career that's allowed me the freedom in order to train and set my own schedule while being fully remote and still actually paying my bills, which is great. Um, So I work for a media company. I do some casting and marketing efforts for them. And then I do have some freelance social media clients where I basically assist them in coming up with content. I'll sometimes take photos for them and then scheduling out and planning their content in order to make them more of a face to their customers through different social media channels. So it's been really great. I enjoy definitely the creative aspect of what I get to do. And 
it's been, like I said, flexible. And that's, I think something that a lot of elite athletes struggle with, particularly if they're needing to still work is finding something that's flexible, but still pays the bills. And so I've been very blessed the past year and a half to be able to kind of settle into something that I'm comfortable with. I feel like I'm good at and is giving me the opportunity to still compete. Super. Do you have a website or how would people get in touch with you if they're just dying to have a social media, media man? <laughs> um, I do have a website and my email address is on there. It's just dannyervich.com. And I don't know if I'm in the place to take on any new clients at the moment with the upcoming games, but maybe this summer. <laughs> okay. People won't just be listening to this now. A lot of people listen to these later yeah season and so on so um dannyarevich.com mm -hmm. and for the listeners would you sp mind spelling spelling that so they can type it in if they're inclined to look you up d-a-n-i-a-r-a-v-i-c-h.com super what's something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out oh boy um Ooh. I'm not going to use my fun fact I always say because that's probably getting a little repeated by now. Um, ooh. I guess if I could have been anything when I grew up, I wanted to be, this is super odd and I really can't give you a reason. I wanted to be a customs officer. Huh. <laughs> and I don't know why I just think it's like the first time I drove into Canada and I like had to <laughs> hand a passport to the customs officer I was like that's really neat what they do <laughs> yeah. I don't know why I thought that was so like unique or interesting but as a kid I was like oh maybe I'll be a customs officer <laughs> that's funny <laughs> cool do you like the uniform no not particularly I don't know why <laughs> I was so drawn to it <laughs> I just was like, oh, that seems like a neat job. <laughs> huh, that's funny. Um, do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words? If so, can you tell us and explain it, please? I would say my personal mantra, going to have to steal the quote. It's John Wooden. But it's something my dad started to saying to me when I was younger playing sports. And it's the John Wooden quote where he says, don't let what you can't do interfere with what you can do. Hmm. And I think particularly with people with disabilities, <laughs> that is pretty fitting and to not let, yeah, something you're not able to do inhibit anything you can do. And I think that's kind of the whole para thing is like figuring out a way to do something differently in order to get the same results. And so I think it's pretty applicable to us as para-athletes. And that's the quote that's always stuck with me. That's super. I like that a lot. Um, Thanks. Very empowering. Yeah, for sure. Super. Well, um, thanks a lot for doing this today. It's been my pleasure talking to you. Of course. It's been nice to meet you personally as well. Uh, <laughs> Danny, I want to say um, I have no... Uh, no right to say this, of course, you know, it's on my <laughs> mind, but I'm proud to have, to have you represent me, um, Toko, and the United States and uh, international. Thank you. You know, it's, um, you're someone I can get behind and be very proud of. So. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
Okay, thank you.